Hello, I'm C. Stephen Ellis, novelist, and this is my podcast, The Writer's Mind. Here we will discuss all aspects that relate to the craft, business, and creative side of writing. For more information or a transcript of this podcast, please go to my website, www.cstephenellis.com, and that's Stephen with a V. So focus your ears because it's time to step inside the writer's mind. Hi, and welcome to The Writer's Mind. I'm your host, C. Stephen Ellis. Today, we'll be visiting with Kimberly O'Hara, a story consultant who specializes in writing memoirs. So you have that burning story that you want to get out there about your life or about your life experiences? You want to listen to this. Also today, I quickly want to talk about editors. I've published two books so far, and I've never worked with an editor. I'm not bragging because I know that all good writers should take the time and the expense to find a good editor. My second book, The Ford Chronicles Off Track, has been published and is out for purchase as we speak. You can go to Amazon.com to get your copy. Recently, however, I got feedback from someone that they found a few grammatical errors. This surprised me as I did have the book proofread by a friend. And while my friend has a brilliant legal mind, he is not a book editor. As I just had it recently explained to me, there are three types of editors you can use when writing a book. The first is someone who works with you from the developmental stage, from the concept of the book. They help you flush it out, help you actually uh, create the story. The second is someone who works with you through the various drafts and checks that everything makes sense, that, you're, that you have the right story structure, that uh, it fits the genre you're writing, that sort of thing. And then the last kind of editor is someone who just goes through the manuscript and looks for any errors to correct. I may have put a comma in the wrong place. Hopefully, I didn't mess up with verb tense because that's my guilty sin, verb tense agreement. The problem I'm finding is that potential editors want to charge me anywhere from $650 to $1,000 to do this. And when I say do this, I mean just proofread. And it doesn't seem like this service should cost that much. Now, perhaps I'm deluding myself into believing that a proofread can get done for a couple hundred dollars or $400 max. And I still don't feel that it is an, an, an unreasonable expectation. Is it? What do you think? Is it unfair of me to expect that a proofread of a 95,000-word manuscript should cost this much? Let me know by sending me an email to cellis at cstephenellis.com, and that's Stephen with a V. I would love to know what you think. Now, sit back, step into the writer's mind as we talk to Kimberly O'Hara about what it's like to be a story consultant. Hi, and welcome to The Writer's Mind. Today we are talking with Kimberly O'Hara. Kimberly O'Hara, and I'm reading her bio right now, is an intuitive book and story coach. Now, I love that title, so we're going to have to definitely talk about that. She has also uh, been a writer and a producer uh, for the film industry, so we'll have to talk about your Hollywood years as well. 
And then uh, you are now involved in doing, uh, I don't see it on here, but we did quickly talk about it, meetups. And again, I want to talk about that. So first of all, Kimberly, welcome to The Writer's Mind. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here today. Thank you for having me or allowing me to do the interview. So tell me right off the bat, what is an intuitive book and story coach? Absolutely. There are story editors and book editors. And I found that people that are writing books often come to me after they've been thinking about writing a book or trying to write a book on their own for a very long time. They've had many people tell them they should write books. They have maybe multiple drafts in, well, a file cabinet, depending on how far back it goes or on their laptop, if it's in current years. And they really just don't know how to either believe that they're a writer, that they have the right to make a book happen, and they have a lot of resistance, but they want this really, really, they want it. And so they come to me for that extra push. I give them structure. I give them a belief system in themselves. I help them to understand they are a writer. And then I go into parts of their story, often their memoirs, and help them see the bigger vision that they want to write about that was hard for them to see when they were just sitting in a room by themselves. And so are these people then who have, um, they, they, they just have a problem getting started. They, they're sitting at the computer or uh, their notepad and just nothing's happening or they are easily distracted by, you know, I'm si oh, the mail's here. I must go get the mail or, or things like that. There is a gnawing knowingness about them that they carry okay. around. <laughs> it pervades all areas of their life. It weighs them down. And when they come to me, they're ready to have a solution to that problem. Some so people come to me, they're not 100% ready. And I send them to my monthly workshops where they can spend a couple hours with me or they'll spend a private day with me where we'll break down their story and I help them see that it has potential in a future. Now, would you say that most of these people are people who are wanting to write their story, their memoirs, their life? I particularly enjoy working with memoir. It sometimes goes into business hybrid. I do have one client who's writing a libretto and um, that's Opera. exciting. Opera? <laughs> No, isn't a libretto for the play? I think that's the structure for a play. Isn't oh, it? The, my ignorance. I always thought that a libretto was like the words to an opera, but. Um, oh, oh, God, I, I don't know. I, I don't I, know. I, I, I needed I a word too. for it because I kept saying, you know, that script for your play. And I thought, well, that okay. doesn't sound very eloquent. I should, And I Googled, you know, and it told me libretto. So I've run with libretto and said it quite publicly many times, and people have nodded. So either nobody knows or I'm right. I, right. I don't know. You're probably I, right. I'm pulling and... it off. <laughs> Besides, if you can't trust Google, who can you trust? That's right. I mean, yeah. I Google everything. You know, okay. like, what is the size of a donut sprinkle? And I expect an answer. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so you talk to, so this person is actually writing a play. And it's about her life. Okay. But they're fictional characters. So there's that area that I'm starting to dabble in. Because I come from the movies, so I come from creating fictional characters. But the fictional characters I always loved were always characters that came from p 
people's lives, something that they experience. I mean, I guess that's true with, with most stories. They all are derivatives of something we've experienced, fiction more so than memoir. So memoir is straight up, this is their life story and what they've experienced. And they feel like it's profound enough that it is not serving the better good of them just speaking it as speakers or um, recording a YouTube video. They want to put pen onto paper and they wanted to get it out to the masses in long form. You know, the book is long form. It's really able, you're able to tell the story in more detail. Okay. And um, I just, I will circle back to your uh, Hollywood time because uh, that's sure. where I, that was my background. So I always like to, you know, talk about old Hollywood times. Of course. But, um, we can do that forever, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, but want to stay focused on memoirs for a minute because, I mean, that's something that is intensely personal, even though I consider, you know, people who write fiction, you know, stories made up in their head, they're still coming from them. It's like they say in a dream, everything is you, you know, you're the person chasing you, you're the airplane that you're in, the bus, etc. So why isn't it like, I don't know, especially in this political climate, why isn't it like the greatest act of indulgence to write a memoir? Oh, well, there should be no indulgence about it. We all have voices. They all need to be heard. If someone believes that they have a story that's going to have an effect on someone else, even if it's an effect on them, I say often to my clients, write the memoir for you. My clients will often see transformation around chapter six. I don't know what that is all about, but inevitably it's become a pattern that I can't ignore, that they can't ignore. Chapter six, big things start to happen in their life. Um, opportunities start to come. Big visions start to come for them. They change the course of their life because they're seeing, oh my gosh, I've done all this stuff. Look at me. I'm, I'm, I am more than I thought I was. I have more to say. I've had more life. And it all starts to become very cohesive. I work right now, and I'm not opposed to working with younger people, but primarily my clients are between their 40s and their 70s. So they're going through that really profound launching of that second stage of life. Let's look back at what we've done and let's think about what we're going to do. And the book and the memoir really helps to, to flesh that out. And then I also say, and you're going to have a book that could make you money, that could give you more opportunities, you could get more clients, you, you know, all the possibilities of having the tangible book. So it's not indulgent. I don't, I don't see indulgency on in anything I've just said. So I, I don't know why I think this, but I just get the sense that I, I suspect a lot of your clients, if not most of them, are women. Is that true? I have had two male clients. Okay. Uh-huh. And one, he was a very, very prolific, very working 60-hour work weeks of the private practice, writing in between clients, um, came up with a patent that he for a product in the middle of writing his book. I mean just a force to be reckoned with, very passionate about what he does and what he's done. And again, a product of seeing, oh my God, I have, uh, wow, I know more than I really even thought I did, kind of epiphany. Um, but primarily they are women. I'm not opposed to, to, to working with anybody. They just need, when they come to me, to have a certain level of readiness to say, I'm going to write a book, Typically, I have them do it with me in the first draft in 12 weeks. 
And then they often hire me for the second draft. It just flows in and we do that in six weeks. And the, the second draft is even more profound than the first draft because we've gotten all the, the gook out. We've done the dump, as I like to call it. And um, so it has to be someone willing to do that. I've just started a 12 month program for people that want to move a little slower because I, that's, that's perfectly acceptable as well. Some people financially want to move slower, uh, creatively want to move slower, but typically my clients come to me, they're ready to write a check. They're ready to write a book. So in terms of co story coaching and, and, you know, and helping them, bring out what it is they need to to free themselves up so they can get it essentially out what is the difference between that and let's say uh an editor i mean do you act sure. as an editor later on in the process or are you constantly editing how does that work i want my clients to be led to a certain way that their voice is that i show them so that they can then start acclimating themselves to writing in that new way. If I constantly am editing them, then they're not going to have the practice to see how to do it themselves. So in the beginning of the process, I might do a little typing into their chapter, which I'm going to send back to them. I'll review it. I'll do some typing into the chapter. I'll send it back to them. But in the coaching call, I'll say, here's the reason why I wrote that, that sentence that way. It'll either be I see that you have potential for a lot more humor. I'd like to see you explore that. Or sometimes there might be vagueness in a point that you're making. Do you see that possibility? Is that something that you'd be willing to explore? That way they start to catch themselves and they'll say that to me in subsequent calls. They'll say, oh, I was about to write and I thought of you and I changed it. And they're so, they're, it's exciting. I mean, anytime we learn how to do something it's exciting so so if i did it for them then they wouldn't have that joy and that thrill and that learning curve okay okay so this yeah. is two follow-up questions then i mean at yeah. some point the book needs to go through an edit just a, right. a, a proofread and just content and you know where you want to much much the way you edited the questions i originally sent you <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. No, no, that's okay. But I mean, that's that, is that something you do, or do you actually hook them up with a third-party person to do that? No, we. So my process is we do a five-hour meeting before they start their book, and I don't know if it's because I come from so many collaborative meetings in the movie business, having to deal with six people with all different opinions. I can really, when I'm only talking to one person about their life. I can focus in really, really fast on storylines and through lines. So we have a pretty good structure and a developmental process before they even begin their book. So there's not a lot of structural editing that needs to be done. When we get into the second draft, I'm moving paragraphs around like crazy for them. Okay. Like I, I'm moving entire chapter seven has become now chapter two and half of chapter two is now chapter six. In the second draft, I get more heavy-handed with them, and they are appreciative of that because they're now needing to smooth out and write into me moving chunks around. Because I'll say, hey, this is amazing. Look, chapter 10 turned out differently than we expected. What a gift. Now we get to write chapter 11 to jump off of chapter 10, and sometimes chapter 12 is an all-new chapter. So I love the second draft. It's a very different experience than the first draft. And then they go to a red line editor 
the red line editor, when I have someone I've just started to work with for my clients, make sure all the sentences are complete. So you may verb tense agreement, things like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so it seems to me, uh, and correct me, which I know you will, uh, it seems to me <laughs> <Red> that, <line. laughs> that what you're really helping these people do, and this is something that all writers need, uh, at least all the writers I've met, well, yeah, except for one, um, is to help silence that inner critic. You know, that's, that's the thing that, you know, we often, you know, it's a parable in terms of stories. You know, people will be sitting there typing away and they'll go, this is great, this is great. And then they'll go, this is terrible, this is terrible. Why am I doing this? How do I stop this? You know, why am I wasting my time? So what tips do you have for just the general writing audience, not anyone in particular, but just the sure. general writing audience for silencing that inner critic so that you can just get the word out? I don't know if I have any tip to ever silence the inner critic. It is always going to be in all areas of our lives. It's um, setting a foundation so that you have the tools to manage it when it comes up. Laugh at it and have it work in your favor. Because those inner critics sometimes are voices that you're not writing in um, that can actually talk in a way that you think, you know, I've had conversations with inner critics where I've been like, shut up, F you. And then the inner critics like you're, and then I thought, Hey, actually I, my inner critics actually a character. I, I'm going to develop that <laughs> character. Next thing you know, I'm writing about some like, you know, badass, you know, chick in Oklahoma. I'm like, I don't know who that is. So you got to listen to these voices cause they could be characters that you're suppressing that's one thing that I've discovered. That gets more into TV and film, of course. Um, but uh, other, other, the first thing I tell people, even when they come to my meetups and they don't even know if they're writers, as I say to them, the first thing you do when you walk in this room, even for two hours, is you say, I'm a professional writer just for now. I'm well, not interested in anything else. Well, circling back, though, uh, how, do you, what do you, how do you help people who, um, you know, get to that point with the inner critic so that the inner critic doesn't just stifle them completely and stop them from doing anything? Well, I mean, that's where the coaching comes in. So I have a client who sat for 10 hours in front of her computer working on her chapter, and then we talked the next day, and she happened to mention this had happened. And I said, you call me on hour one next time right so people don't realize that there's someone out there like I'm there right so I'm not just there waiting for the chapter to arrive you can call me at any time and say I'm really I can't push through this I don't I've had clients call me up and say you know I've written this three times and it just feels like it's the biggest pile of crap and I'll say I'll remind them what we talked about in our coaching call and they'll realize oh my god it's not you know we'll turn the crap and you know into, I guess there's a saying on that, it turns something into fertilizer. I, it's evading me at the moment. But, um, <laughs> okay. Um, some metaphor in there, but they, w w I show them how what they're thinking actually they've forgotten. See, we forget, and that's when the inner voice, that's when those inner critics come in. They go, aha, they forgot how brilliant they were. So sometimes you just need someone to put you back on that course of your own brilliance. And that's why those continuing weekly conversations shore them up when they're out there. You know, it's really dangerous 
to be out there on your own writing all the time. I mean, it's, it's, there are a lot of writers that do it and, and they fight through a lot of those voices. I'm sure from just having the skill and belief that they're professional writers, which I think is the number one mindset. So uh, I imagine, uh, I was just thinking about this the other day because I, uh, I started book three. And, wow, and I, Thank you. Uh, but the thing how is, is that, how do I do it? That's, that's another, that's a long story. And I'll be happy to be on your podcast and answer any questions <laughs> about it. Um, the thing is, though, is that what happened was I wrote that, that all-important first paragraph. And when I wrote it, I was so happy. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm on so my way. I look around the room and there's nobody here. And the dogs are looking at me, but they don't know what's <laughs> going on. So I, I call my wife. My wife is at her office and she doesn't have time to listen to me. And so was, there was that moment of frustration where I had <laughs> no one to share that excitement with. And I imagine that for you, especially with your clients, they call you when they have those aha moments or those great moments of excitement? Well, I give them the permission to, whether they do or not, they're probably looking at their dogs and calling their spouses <laughs> as well. But <clears throat> this is why I've started developing a program that creates more of a community. Because I feel like as working writers, we need a community where we can put on Facebook or make a call to an accountability partner. And that person is there for you that says, I'll listen to that paragraph you just wrote. That paragraph is amazing. No judgment, no criticism, just pure celebration. Like, just let's just, just, all just celebrate this. And I did a LinkedIn article recently about criticism. If, is it okay if I just address that for one second? Because I think course. it's really important. Um, I feel like a lot of unsolicited criticism is in, the, is in the writing world where people say, you know, I was really great, but can I offer you, you know, I, like, here's what I think about that. And it's like, I'm not sure I really need that right now. Can we just celebrate that I just wrote? I mean, that's, you know, and I, in the movie and TV industry, well, the movie industry specifically, there was a lot of constructive criticism that dashed a lot of dreams. And I'm not going to be a dream dasher. Dream dasher, see movie executive. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not going to be a dream dasher. Yeah. Who am I to tell somebody? So I want to create a community of celebration where people say, I just did this. I just did that. Is somebody, can I post this? Can I post? They're all over the place on the internet, but it just seems like a lot of unstructured people just dumping their stuff, praying someone listens or reads. It's not ordered. And so I want to create a community of people that all know each other and are in a program with me that can do a book and celebrate. Now, do you step outside of the memoir genre? Do you help people with fiction as well? I have not yet. Is that so, something you want to do? or Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because I have pipelines to the next step, which would be movies. And... I have you know, if a memoir comes along that could be a great movie, I have a pipeline to that for clients. Not there hasn't been one yet. Um, and fiction would be something that would open those doors as well. So I'm really excited about that next part of my business. 
It's just, I've been really focused on understanding what my clients need just in the writing space right now. Okay. So, um, one of the things I noticed on your, your, uh, website was you talk about not being creative enough. What does that mean? Not being creative enough. Well, people believe that they're not being creative enough. You know, like I'm not a creative enough person to write. Like, who am I to write? I mean, like, they have this image that if they're not, like, wearing, you know, a leather jacket and, like, carrying a beat-up guitar and, like, contemplating life all day over, like, a cold latte that's sat... That they're not... If they're not in, like, Berlin, they're not creative, you know? So (laughs) that's, that's, that's that's a farce. We're all incredibly creative. We all have creativity inside of us in some way and we all have a story inside of us so people that want to write that story they have enough creativity to do it it just needs to be tapped into this definition of creativity so do you keep a journal and do you encourage your uh your clients to keep journals so i'm in a new journal mindset and uh (laughs) A new journal mindset? I'm in a new journal mindset. I have uh, done away with the journaling as of now. I have clients that are on a 30-day no journal policy um, who are reaching out to me. They're in journal withdrawal. And I've done this because they are using the journals now as crutches to keep writing the same codependent crap over and over and over again. And they're not writing their books. Okay, I'm going to ask for a little more elaboration on that. What do you mean by codependent crap over and over again? This this sounds something that's more about what's happening in their lives than necessarily what they're trying to put in a book. Is that correct? Well, so when I wrote for movies and television, I know that I was held down by a lot of stuff from my past, family and history stuff. And I filled journal after journal after journal with the same, you know, angry stuff, right? And when I found those journals, I realized that I I wasn't journaling. That was all great for that time in my life. But when I was ready to get really serious as a writer, I needed to put the writing into actually a tangible project. I needed to stop saying, well, I don't really want to write today, but I'm going to do a little journaling and then I journal about like my mom or I journal about like, you know, the guy or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, I wrote. And it's, it's not, I didn't write. I just tinkered and nothing really, you know, occasionally something would come out of it creatively, but you have to sit down. You have to open your laptop. You have to have a purpose and say, today I'm going to write on my book. I'm not going to journal. I'm going to write on my book. So when I see resistance with clients, or people that aren't even clients yet, and I say, where where have you been writing? They say, oh, well, I journal every day. I'm like, yeah, we probably need to stop that for a little while until you start writing your book. So are you familiar with, uh, uh, God, I'm blanking on her name. The, writing the, on the artist, the artist way. The or? artist way. Writing on the left side of the brain. Drawing on the left side of the brain. Things like that. She does morning pages. She talks about morning Loved pages. Loved morning pages. So how would you make Loved. the distinction between morning pages and journaling? I did morning pages in an actual artist way class with this amazing woman called Kelly Morgan. She's also a writing coach here in Los Angeles. I have enormous amounts of respect for her. And I did a six week or eight week course with her. And she's someone who should be on your show, by the way. 
um, <laughs> um, I needed that at that time. I did not know who I was anymore as a writer. I did not know who I was as a creative. I was nowhere near being a book coach. I was coming out of the entertainment industry. So I needed to journal my way through that precipice big time. And those were organized journal entries. I mean, they had structure. I mean, the artist way is a very structured process of taking you through journaling. So it was journaling on another level. It wasn't just me journaling amok. It was journal with direction, right? And, and that brought me to more clarity for sure. Right. So I, I urge anybody to do the artist way. I think it's I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, first of all, I'm writing down the term journal amok because that's <laughs> um, somehow I'm going to use that somewhere. I don't know where, but thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. So then let's talk about your story. Let's talk about how you, you know, arrived in this area. So uh, you started out as um, a poor white child. I don't know how, what happened. <laughs> I was a poor white child. Okay. I already mentioned it. Well, middle lower class. Um, well, I, I always wanted to be in movies, uh, from the very, very, very beginning. My dad would take me to Charlie Chaplin. Um, what do you call those when they play movie after movie after movie? Uh, marathons, marathons, uh, in Martha's Vineyard, actually, when I was a child and it was one of the most exciting, I just remember it as one of the, my most, it just was so wonderful so I had the bug really early, <clears throat> um, and so I always have been a reader, and I've always been a writer, and I went into the movie business. And then I didn't want to be in the movie business anymore. It wasn't uh, – I didn't know that I didn't have, like, my soul in the movie business because I wasn't evolved in my own maturity yet. So I had to do some soul searching. I had to deal with some trauma that came up, and I had to write my own book about the trauma – and in the process of writing my own book about the trauma, like I talked about earlier in this interview, new doors started to open for me. I started to see a bigger vision for my life. Things stopped being black and white, movie or nothing. You know, I got a business coach. I got a life coach. I would have never contemplated hiring those people when I was in the movie business. So we just didn't hire book coaches. You just dealt. Like, you just suffered, right? Right. Um, and that's when someone said to me, you need to, you're going to be a book coach. And I thought, well, that sounds like a really good idea. I have no idea what that means. And um, it worked out. It worked out really, really well. So that's how, I, how I've come to this place. Well, let's talk about your time in Hollywood. So what was that sure. like? How did you get started? What did you do? You were, <clears throat> I know you were a writer. I know you were a producer. Um, what happened? I did the chain of command from you know, intern to, uh, to set PA to office PA for Ted Hope back when he was making his first movies of Hell Hartley in New York. And Ted Hope's a pretty um, well-known movie producer and, you know, production coordinator, line producer, production manager, till I finally was like, I want to run the show. You know, I don't want to, I want to be in charge. And that's a really, you know, raising money for movies is, I've, you know, so I did all the meetings and all the money raising and all the script finding and had a couple stints working for a Hollywood producer and um, made about eight movies. Uh, made Calista, one of Calista Flockhart's first movies. She was Allie McBeal. And um, 
work with Tom Sadowski before he, you know, now he's on Newsroom and um, is well-known Leslie Bibb before she was somebody, Anthony LaPaglia and Eric Stoltz, just, just top, amazing, talented people in these little independent movies. And had a big movie that was supposed to go. It was going to be my first $10 million picture with America Ferrera was going to be the star when she was on Ugly Betty. And uh, the stock, the housing bubble burst. It was 2008 and the project went away. And I just was, I had a, I had a little kid. I was living in San Jose and I just went, I can't do this anymore. Like I just, I don't have the, I can't do it anymore. And I just stopped for about six years. Wow. I mean, living in San Jose and trying to keep a Hollywood career, that's pretty oh, impressive. It, was, it didn't work. Oh, well, <laughs> I, sold a, I sold a couple scripts when I was there. I did do a bunch of writing. Um, I did have someone buy a script from me. I did option another script. So I did keep writing through all of it. But yeah, I was really out of the loop. Okay. Really I, out of the loop. And so that was when you decided to, you know, chuck Hollywood? That's when I decided to chuck Hollywood. And kind of wandered about for a while. I became an editor of a food magazine. Um, I, you know, and, and then I started, then I got into some more personal recovery. That's when I started to realize that, that, that the insides were not healthy. So now you've alluded to this a couple times and I don't want to make you uncomfortable and I don't want to, you know, dig deeper if you don't want me to. But I'm curious, and I'm sure people listening are curious, what happened? What, what, is, what, what was the trauma that occurred to, in your life, and when did it occur? Mm -hmm. Well, um, and this is what my book's about, and it's, uh, oddly enough, a journaling, journaling memoir. Because um, <laughs> I did journal my way through recovery, <clears throat> and I teach people how to do that in this book. Um, I was sexually abused when I was about, you know, early years till I was about 10 by my dad and did not remember really. I mean, just, just, I think I made a, an executive decision that that was not going to be my story, but you cannot repress something that has happened to you that's that of that magnitude. It, it will seep into every area of your life. It will seep into your marriages. It will seep into your parenting. It will seep into your career. It'll seep into your, uh, it will, it will create addictions. So I had a dream one night and I knew. And then once you open that door and you're willing to go to therapy, then it all, you know, then you know it all. I mean, then it's like you, you, it's like you always knew and you're like, oh my God, you know? And there were a couple of times that I, I remember one really impactful, I had started writing the book about it. And my book's not about what was done to me because I didn't have that story um, at all. Uh, it's more about the lie that I told myself for so long the other person that I lived as for so long and the three year process of becoming the person I am today, who has one of the most amazing, incredible lives full life, full of love and joy and how I got to that point. But someone said to me at one point when I was writing the book, you talk about my clients calling me and saying, Oh, this is all, you know, crap. And I, I this isn't, I no one cares. I had one day where I said to someone, what if none of this is real? What if like I'm making all this up? And she said to me, Kim, 
it's not like it's an attention grabber. You know, it's not like it makes you popular. It's not like something that someone makes up for, for attention. She said, nobody creates the story of incestual sexual abuse. Nobody. And she gave me that permission to keep going forward. And I'm really glad that I did. Well, that's, that's amazing. So I imagine that, uh, as you said, the, um, the initial trauma has infected your life in other ways. And that is kind of what your journey has been. Right. Sort of dealing with all of the ancillary, ancillary. Um, issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I imagine, so is that what you do with some of your, um, your clients when they, they sure. come? So, I mean, it's almost like you're, you're a book coach, but you're also helping them through uh, their trauma. Absolutely. So, yeah, that must make you amazingly Someone popular. Someone once said it's like book therapy. Okay. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> interesting. I don't give any advice. You know, I don't give it any advice. I just hold space. And I direct them towards how that can be written about. And we do find the, uh, like I said, some of my clients are, are writing about some pretty heavy stuff and they can be funny. And, you know, we need humor in this. I mean, dark needs light. And um, things happen to us in recovery from trauma that are, can be funny. Yes. Well, I suppose so. You know? Well, um, so then on your, on your uh, website, you have a word that I cannot pronounce. <laughs> so I'm going to mangle it. Um, achalasia? It's achalasia. Achalasia. So what is achalasia? So achalasia is a rare autoimmune disease that attacks your esophagus, and it makes your esophagus um, lose its motility. So it doesn't it's not able to swallow food. Um, so, and, and you had this uh, right when I started sexual abuse recovery, it hit out of nowhere. I know wow. it's, 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 I wouldn't have believed that there's a connection until I had clients writing about their trauma who started to have physical reactions to, Then I went, oh, the body, you know, Louise Hay has this book called Heal Your Life. And it's this profound book about, well, she heals herself from cancer, which, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But she talks about the different parts of the body and how they react. So it it wasn't a shock to me that it was my voice that broke, basically. And that was my voice. And that was my voice in the movie business. That was my voice in, in, in every area. Can you eat? I'm perfectly, I had a, I had a big surgery and I'm perfectly healed. Oh, okay. So, I mean, this actually has to be corrected with surgery then. It has to be corrected with surgery. Oh yeah. It has to, you can't swallow. My bed had to be on a tilt. Um, I got down to like 105 pounds, uh, and I was in denial. That's another thing is I didn't believe it. I thought I just had anxiety. So you didn't believe that you were actually sick. You thought that, you know, just all of this recovery was making you sick. Exactly. Which, though, as... Is possible. Possible. Okay. Right? But when you've been abused, you already have a very low value for your body. So to go and take care of the body that carries you around all the time is a learning curve. So I I had to realize that I neglected 
my body during this whole time for like nine months before I went in to the doctor. And when I went into the doctor, the doctor went, oh my God, have you looked in the mirror? Wow. How long has this been going on? <clears throat> Do you look back like, at that as a, <laughs> is that, was that your turning oh, I would point? Never, oh, I would never. Oh yeah. That was a huge, that was just such an epiphany. That was such an incredible epiphany. Um, and I have a funny story about that. I went into the surgery and my mom came to help me, which was very healing. It's part of my story. She stayed in the hospital with me because I was in the hospital for about four days. And I told her, I said, I'm not going to hold back ever again, any of my feelings. I'm never going to hold back my voice. I'm going to say everything how I feel. And I'm scared about the surgery. I'm going to make sure everybody knows. She's like, oh, okay, honey. You know, that's great. You know? <laughs> and so when the anesthesiologist came, I'm like, I'm scared. I'm scared. You know, I'm like telling him, I'm scared. What are you doing? I'm scared. And he, you know, he dealt with it, put me out. She said, in the, the, right when the surgery was over, <laughs> they were wheeling me into recovery. I sat fully up, like completely under, sat fully up and just started shouting, I'm scared and I want everyone to know. She said she's never seen a more freaked out post-op room of doctors and nurses. She said it was like, they were looking at her like, what are you gonna do? She's like, I'm, she said she was gonna do this. So it's amazing how the body and the mind and our subconscious and the healing that we go through. I mean, this is just an example of all the different, look at, I just told you about 10 stories. In this short period of time, we've been on so many stories. And I'm just kind of an average, I'm just kind of an average girl. Like everybody's got a lot of stories in them that they can talk about. And, and someone might hear this. They might've either been abused. They might've left the movie industry. They might have achalasia and they might be like, Oh, I better get to the doctor. I've been choking on food for seven months. I mean, who knows? Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I would hope so. Honestly, I really would. So, um, I was, I, I'm looking at my notes here, and so I see something about, um, you have something called Story Meetup and Story Sessions, which are monthly workshops. Mm -hmm. And what is that? Is this like a writer's group or what? Every month, and I just started it. I've done them periodically and gotten such a, an incredible response that I've been asked to do them every month. And they're three hours. They're in West LA, and it's for people to come in and test run their stories. So they come in, it's a, it's a, Right now, it's usually about six to eight people, and there it's a community. It's that community that I'm talking about, where they come in and they talk about why they're there. They have hopes to be writers, so we immediately make sure they know they are writers. And I have them write about, um, I typically know who they are before they come in. They've already told me a little bit about them, so I can create writing prompts that work for everybody. And then when people share on their prompts, they get feedback from the group on what that would look like in a book. Now, is this for clients only or this is, is this open to everybody? Everybody. It's $97 to come. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. that's not bad. Yeah. No, is that 90, not, that's per visit or that's month? Per, or? Per, per workshop. Okay. Per workshop. And that'll be on my website which is www.astoryinside.com. There'll be a, a link now to every single date for people to pay in advance. So I have, what was happening is I had people say, oh, I can't come on October. And I, they'd be like, let me know. And I'm writing down like individual names. Let Jennifer know in September. And I'm like, I can't do that anymore. I'm too busy. I'm like, I'll just send out one email with every single date 
and people can just click on them. Oh, I'm going to go in November. And then they sign up and they have their spot. So um, let's, let's go to the end of this now. So, you know, you have a client, they have finished their book and you've read it. Everybody's in tears. Everybody loves the book. <laughs> what next? And how are you involved in that? How do they get it out there? So there's, I'll try to be concise with this because I know we're almost out of time. No, don't worry. We, we can, we're, we're not locked into anything. Okay. Um, so I, um, sometimes clients will come to me and I'll ask them straight up, are you self-publishing or do you want to go for the big book publisher? Are you going for St. Martin's Press? Or do you want right. a Kirkus review? Or do you want to be a New York Times bestseller? They say yes. I say you should write a proposal then. Because book agents and book editors, they, they're not going to read a book. They're right. just not. So they'll hire me to write a proposal. And it's a similar thing. And then to writing the book, because you have to come up with all the chapters. And then when um, the book is done, it's their responsibility to go to agents and editors and sell their book. If I know somebody, because my network's always growing, I'm happy to make that introduction. Very happy to make that introduction because sometimes I'll have a percentage of it as well. So that'll, I have an incentive, of course, to sell it. Um, other people that come to me that self-publish, that's the end of the line for me. So I'll send them to a red line editor and then I'll give them some tips or some contacts. Here's someone I know that does, you know, the Amazon upload really easily. Here's someone I know who makes an ebook. Here's a, here, do you need someone for a book cover? Do you need publicity photos? Do you need a book PR person? I just network out for them and they just take that advice. And that's, that's just me giving advice. That's just free. Got it. Okay. So I have uh, one last, actually I have a couple last questions. Uh, so, which means there, I have the penultimate question. How's that? Oh, oh, okay. Um, I'm scared now. Tell me, and when I say tell me, tell us about your writing style. What do you do? Do you get up? Are you early? Are you late night? Do you dictate? Do you pen and pad? What do you do? Oh boy, that's that's a hard that's a hard question. Ah. <clears throat> uh. I think it depends on what I'm working on. So yesterday, I just wasn't feeling the motivation to do my own book proposal. So I went to the Beverly Hills Library to the quiet room for six hours. And that helped me to get rid of the noise around my space. I love five in the morning. I think it's one of the most amazing times to write. I think five in the morning till eight in the morning is just such a like fertile time to write if you can do that every day. And for a long time when I was writing my book, I was up that time every single day. I have two little kids and I have a business I'm running. Um, and so that doesn't become sustainable after for a long period of time. So I think the best advice I would give to writers based on my, my practices is write every day, but don't be hard on yourself if you didn't do it at the exact time you were supposed to do. Because I get some of my best ideas on a post-it in one sentence in my car, in, the in line at the supermarket, stand in, in a, at, at the auditorium watching my daughter's you know, recital. I'm like, well, just have paper with you. Because I'll be like, oh my God, that's what that character's supposed to do. And I'll grab a pen and I'll write it down. And it's like, 
I could have written for seven hours and not come up with that. So I think it's being open that writing is a fluid experience. We're not necessarily locked into sitting at our laptops every day and, and, and blaming ourselves if we don't do that. It's always, if you're, when you're a writer, it's always happening. It's always, always out there. And I think just trusting the flow of that. That's one thing I've learned as someone who sat in front of a computer for eight hours and was like, I will write the winning screenplay. I see that that doesn't work anymore. Uh, That's yeah. That's my little opinion. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then I always ask this question uh, of my interviewees, or actually I say always, I'm just starting to ask questions like this, but <laughs> it's, um, we're going to be wrapping it up. So my last question is, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to talk about, that you want to feel that you want to get out there? Wow. Hmm. I don't think so. I think we've talked about a tremendous amount of, of material, both personal and professional. Um, I think that there's this belief that <clears throat> you have to have a certain mindset to be a creative person. Uh, like you're supposed to be doing certain functions to be a creative person. And, and, and I think creativity is in everything and in everywhere. And, and one thing I did not do enough of when I worked as a screenwriter, um, and I try to do it now as a, as a writer um, in writing a TV show or finishing my book, is I try to just get up out of my chair and go outside. And, and Anne Lamont just talked about this in her TED Talk. Look up and look at the trees and walk on the beach and go laugh with my kids and go eat a nice meal because you got to be living life. You're missing life. It's like passing us by and it's all part of the process. And then trust you're going to go back and sit down and do some more writing. Great words to end it on. So yeah. tell people how they can get in touch with you. Well, I'd say go to my website, which is www.astoryinside.com, or you can email me at kim at astoryinside.com. And I do offer complimentary story to success discovery calls. They have a value of $397, but I'll offer them to callers or listeners today who are at that serious point of writing a book. Um, and so that, that I'll open that up. They can email me and um, we can talk a little bit on email. And so we can do it like I do a little questionnaire to see if they're ready. And then we can go from there. That's perfect. Kimberly or Kim, thank you very, very much. Thank you.